This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good afternoon and good evening. It is the 21st of February, 2022. I am James A. Fury, your host for the next hour on the Late Late Show for Teachers Talk Radio, coming to you from Wisconsin in the United States. Today I'll be speaking with Editor-in-Chief of the Chalkboard Review, visiting fellow with the Fordham Institute, and middle school English teacher, Mr. Daniel Buck. Stay tuned and remember to text in with any questions you might have for myself or Daniel Buck, and I'll be with you soon. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the first of what I hope to be many Late Late Shows with me, James A. Fury, as your host. I have a great guest for this, my inaugural show. In a moment, I'm going to be joined by Mr. Daniel Buck. Often described as a conservative teacher, Daniel has written for several publications and spends his days as a teacher in a small Catholic school right here in Wisconsin. Before we let Daniel speak for himself, I'd like to draw attention to one of his latest pieces for the Fordham Institute, which he discusses the popular methods for teaching English in American schools, as represented by Lucy Calkins' units of study, and why he argues that they aren't effective. Given a short perusal of his article, we see that he mentions methods such as watching movie clips in place of reading text, reading excerpts from text instead of the entire novel, and generally selecting texts which are meant to, quote, meet the students where they are at. I'll be asking Daniel about these issues in his article, and we'll also talk about what it means to be a conservative teacher, why classical literature is preferable to contemporary literature, the use of critical lenses in the classroom, school choice, and more. As always, if you'd like to talk to either myself or Daniel, you can call in by finding Teachers Talk Radio on the Podbean app, or you can also text in questions, and we'll be happy to speak to you. We're going to take a short break for ads and get right into it. Talk to you all soon. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you too through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. Introducing Uplearn. Uplearn is an online curriculum learning resource for A-levels that improves student outcomes whilst reducing teacher workloads. Teachers use Uplearn to facilitate independent learning and consolidation of classroom material. Over 150 schools have seen grade improvements with Uplearn, including St Paul's Girls School, Michaela Community School and ARC schools. Book a demo at uplearn.co.uk and quote TTR for 10% off. That's Uplearn, U-P-L-E-A-R-N dot co dot U-K. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. 
We are with a Slack group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. All right, well, let's get right into it. I am here with uh, Daniel Buck and we are getting ready to talk all things education. Looking forward to it. Um, is my audio, but my before we get right? to that, hello, Daniel. Hi. Hi. Okay. Yeah, I can hear you. Sorry about that. Uh, yeah. So I was uh, just going to ask you uh, a couple of questions first before we get into kind of more education policy and stuff like that. Uh, I was wondering if for listeners who aren't necessarily familiar with you, if you could just give a short history of uh, how you came to be where you are today. Uh, you can cover things like how'd you get started in teaching? Uh, how did you become a writer? Uh, and what made you decide to take on kind of more of an activist role in education? Yeah, uh, I came into teaching through college, as I think a lot of people do, just exploring on what I wanted to do and realized I wanted to be an English teacher, not a doctor. The schools could always kind of told me I had a, I said, you know, like, you're good at science, you're good at math, you should do that. But I reflected and realized, you know, I was in the school newspaper and I liked reading books and writing terrible poetry in my free time. Uh, and then I taught for a handful of years, kind of learning the ropes. And then I think it was two summers ago, um, somebody said to me, you know, I've never heard I was explaining some of my views that I tend to be a little right of center, prefer direct instruction, classic lit, these kinds of things. And I was telling somebody uh, else about this and like, you know, I've never heard a, a teacher with other views before. And I realized um, I should probably start speaking out a little more publicly, started writing here and there, had some success. And it's just been uh, uh, continuing to work and improve in my advocacy and ideas ever since. All right. Yeah. Kind of a similar you know, path that I took really, uh, you know, went through the college system and, you know, didn't really know too many other people who thought differently about education like I did. And then uh, ultimately started to find a lot of people on Twitter, which is where we met. Um, <clears throat> so as I just said, you're one of the few people that I did meet on Twitter. Uh, later, we connected in real life. It just happens that you live really close to me. Uh, mm -hmm. So we've met a few times. Uh, so I thought it would be appropriate, actually, to ask a question that comes from Twitter. Um, I noticed today you're actually blowing up a bit uh, for saying the following. You tweeted earlier, how about schools take up the cause of reading, writing, and math, uh, which to me seems reasonable enough. I was just wondering what inspired this question, uh, and in answering that, try to address skeptics out there who might be asking themselves, uh, is it really that bad? Have schools really abandoned the teaching of reading, writing, and math? Yeah, um, yes and no to, to that question. What inspired it? I think there's a, uh, a Washington Examiner, uh, their newspaper magazine had a, a cover photo, which was Glenn Youngkin just pointing to a blackboard, uh, blackboard that said two plus two equals four on it. And then um, his electoral opponent, whose name I'm blanking on right now, had arrows pointing to him and was calling him all sorts of names. Um, so that's kind of the hot take inspiration for that tweet. And the more thoughtful, you know, think tank, eggheadery explanation for it is um, a lot of what I do in my writing and on social media is criticize critical pedagogy, which is this very fringe, very radical theory of education, which sees schools as the centers of advocacy and social change, not the place where we, you know, train students in academic skills or traditional knowledge or, you know, a liberal education um, traditionally conceived. So that was me just kind of 
poking fun at um, critical pedagogy while also emphasizing, you know, the, what schools are for, a, a very back-to-basics model, the three R's, reading, writing, and arithmetic. Great. Yeah, actually, that uh, leads in really well to a lot of what I want to talk to you about today, the uh, being a conservative teacher, whatever that means, um, critical pedagogy, all that stuff I really want to uh, cover today. Uh, as I mentioned before, uh, I know you. Uh, I know you're not like a MAGA hat wearing, gun toting, country music loving, stereotypical conservative or anything like that. Uh, but you do receive a lot of pushback uh, for what's referred to as your conservative views. Uh, so I guess I'm just wondering: Would you like to rescue your reputation? Are you a dyed-in-the-wool conservative, or how would you describe yourself politically? Uh, I think rhetorically, I try to stay pretty darn moderate. If we look at individual policies, uh, I can have some very libertarian views on those. This is an education podcast though, so I won't get into all of those. I think the accusation that rubs me, there are two accusations that kind of tend to get under my skin. Maybe I shouldn't be arguing with the Twitter, Twitter trolls on a podcast, but one of them is the idea that I'm trying to politicize K-12 education, which is not, not at all what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to depoliticize at least the classroom. You know, polit or education policy is inherently political, you know, how are we funding? What are we going to read? These sorts of things. But my goal is to turn the, the classroom space into an apolitical space. Um, and I think uh, the education sphere is so, you know, it's, it's two deviations to the left. So me trying to be a centrist in the classroom um, is often perceived as trying to politicize the classroom because I'm just looking at a lot of the, the lefty progressivism that's there and saying, hey, let's stop doing that. You know, there's that article that you and I co-wrote for City Journal. It says, hey, let's get CRT, let's get critical theory, let's get activism out of the classroom. And one of the a larger Twitter accounts said that you and I were trying to politicize K-12 education. And it's like, no, like literally what we're saying, get it out right. of there. As if we're the first people to ever speak about politics in regards to education. Um, it's pretty intertwined, those two topics. Yeah. And then the, the second one is that I'm just some sort of culture warrior, which I just, I, everyone is engaged in the culture war. I think really it's the culture war is just kind of we're dealing with issues at a more philosophical level. Uh, it tends to be thrown around when you are advocating for a policy or change that other people just don't think is important. You know, the fact that I think school choice is a good thing is considered culture warring because somebody else doesn't think it's a good thing. So it's just both of those accusations I find rather silly. And those are the two that are thrown at me most often. Right. I do wonder about some of these, uh, these labels that we see attributed to uh, different viewpoints in education. Um, you know, school choice, not wanting critical methods in the classroom, teaching classical literature. Uh, all of these seem to have become known as right-wing causes, at least here in America, uh, where we're located. Um, I was wondering, is there something inherently conservative about these things, or do you find those labels to be pretty meaningless at this point? Uh, myself, I just tend to think, you know, I'm out for what is best for my students and um, trying to find the methods and the, the topics and the curriculum that, you know, best serves them. Uh, whether that gets labeled conservative or, or liberal is really kind of secondary to me. Yeah. I mean, the conservative versus... So let's take those one at a time. I do think there's something conservative about some of those, you know, uh, classic literature. We look at, you know, famous quotes like Matthew Arnold, the best that has been thought and said. Um, people like 
Burke uh, and oh, I'm drawing a blank on the guy's name. Suddenly God is coming to mind, but just tradition and um, history. And I mean, yes, classic lit and the Western canon are kind of, I think they aren't inherently conservative, but they are appealing to conservatives. Um, a silly little difference there. Something like school choice, I think has libertarian roots, the idea that we're going to um, sort of create a market for education, you know, more free enterprise and less government control. I also think it ties back to someone, again, like Edmund Burke, where we're with school choice, we want to encourage people to create their own little local schools, their own little micropods, their own learning communities, these little platoons is the phrase that I'm thinking of from Burke. So I do think there are things that are appealing to these in or for conservatives, but I do think they have, you know, justifications that don't necessarily have to come from conservative thought. There's, you know, a very progressive uh, argument to be made for school choice that it's going to disproportionately benefit poor and minority and ESL and students with learning disabilities. Um, so they don't have to be conservative, you know. Yeah, that is exactly where I was leading to, actually. Um, <clears throat> I was thinking about, you know, these causes that are traditionally champion, championed by conservatives. And I, I was thinking there's so many uh, things about them that would appeal to liberal uh, people. And I think one of the main things that a lot of school reform people in America are trying to do right now is um, really reach the parents where they're at. Uh, the problem with that for some conservative uh, talking heads is that a lot of those parents are very liberal. Um, so the the idea that we're we're reaching out to liberal parents and trying to build bridges with them uh, in order to uh, appeal to them on their liberal values, I think that we have some pretty solid ground uh, as far as like you said, school choice benefiting uh, you know poor communities or or traditionally disadvantaged communities. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was teaching classical literature instead of contemporary literature, which is. Uh, part of what you covered in that uh, article of yours that I talked about uh, before you came on from the Fordham Institute. Um, I had commented a while back that EduTwitter seems to break into different cliques. Uh, these are classical traditional educators, cognitive science educators, uh, progressive educators, and so on. Um, a lot of your writing seems to place you as someone in the classical or trad traditional camp. Would you say that's fair to say? Yeah, I think that's very much fair to say. I don't call myself a trad because we don't tend to use that phrase in like the American sphere. I feel like that's more popular in Britain. Um, but yeah, I, I tend to, the classical folks, while I'm friendly with them and read a lot of their books, it's just a little too um, rote and sequenced and you know, with yeah. guys in Latin that I don't have any experience in. So I've kind of been falling onto uh, the phrase, a liberal education, like a true liberal education. Right. Well, I think I maybe just got you in trouble with Jeremy Wayne Tate. <laughs> That's all right. I think he knows my opinions. <laughs> all right. Well, he'll voice he'll voice his complaints to you in Latin, so you won't be able to understand them anyway. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why do you think that a teacher should teach texts from the canyon, from the canon, sorry, not the canyon, that'd be weird, uh, or classical literature instead of contemporary literature? What's wrong with contemporary literature? <laughs> What's wrong with contemporary literature? Oh, man. Uh, I mean, there's a whole lot of reasons that I think classical literature is preferable. Um, we need books that challenge students, you know, learning to read, especially in the upper grades, once you've gotten past phonics and basic grammar, 
um, once you get to middle school and high school, uh, improving literacy scores is a lot like strength training. The brain needs tension. It needs challenge. If you go to a bench press and just lift the bar 40, 50, 60, 70 times, you're not going to grow in strength at all. And if kids are just picking books that are, quote, at their level, end quote, I'm a level E. So all I'm, I'm going to read is a level E. Um, it's like lifting the bar. It's, it's not going to challenge students. And so their reading scores are not going to improve. I think classic literature has ties to history. So I teach Frederick Douglass to my students every year. And in teaching Frederick Douglass, we also learn about Nat Turner's rebellion. We learn about chattel slavery. We learn about the Emancipation Proclamation. We learn all sorts of history. And this content knowledge is essential for reading. And then finally, I think classic literature, it's not inherently better than modern literature, but we've kind of, we have, you know, they say hindsight is twenty twenty. We have um, time, we have history that's kind of sorted through the gold and the dross for us, where we don't know, you know, I'm, I'm not reading contemporary literature all the time. We're, we haven't seen what has stuck, what's really made a lasting impact. And there's something about just being able to look back and know, again, back to Frederick Douglass, for, you know, 150, 200 years, people continue reading his autobiography and saying, this is important, this moved me, this matters, this is beautiful, this is great. And we kind of have this testament, testimony from history, um, tradition, is the democracy of the dead. We have all of these people basically upvoting Frederick Douglass and saying this is worth reading and we just don't have that yet with contemporary literature. Right, I always like to use the analogy, um, the evolutionary analogy. Uh, these texts that have lasted for so long have somehow proven to be fit, you know, fit for survival or, or somehow like that. Um, so when you think of these contemporary uh, texts, they're not necessarily inherently bad in and of themselves, but they don't have that same uh, testing process that a lot of these, you know, more classical works have um, have been through. You know, they're mm -hmm. not as evolutionary fit. Maybe they will prove to be in the future. But as of right now, we just can't pick from the wide range of, um, you know, choices and decide which one we think is going to last and then, you know, try to choose based off of that. Yeah. Uh, there's also this thing that you had brought up. Um, you keep a kind of alluding to uh, cultural literacy, uh, which you also wrote about in your article. Uh, cultural literacy, of course, being uh, from Edie Hirsch, who I'm just an extreme fan of. I've uh, written about you know, him uh, you know, for Chalkboard Review. Um, and he has this concept of cultural literacy. Can you just explain that for people that may not be familiar? Yeah, so I think to understand cultural literacy, you have to understand how people learn to read, and there's kind of two parts to it. The first part is learning phonics and basic grammar. You know, you're learning the th makes a th sound, and um, b makes a b sound, and you eventually learn to sound out these letters. And this, you know, basic skill, this basic knowledge, you can kind of apply it across content, or you can apply it across texts. That's the word, I'm, the sentence I'm looking for. So you can read nonsense words like sclub or schleb can pronounce them. Um, and then the second half, once kids get that down, knowledge takes over. Um, if my students, I'm going to keep coming back to Frederick Douglass. There's a scene in that, in his autobiography, where he gets to the North and he feels a moment of um, freedom and liberty and then immediately feels anxiety. And if they don't know 
about the laws that allow allowed southern slavers to capture escaped slaves in the north and bring them back down if they don't know that little bit of history that brief moment that brief scene in his autobiography is going to make no sense so the idea of cultural literacy is that knowledge the stuff we know about um matters in our ability to read and comprehend so if somebody's going to read the new york times or the wall street journal they need to know about our constitutional order um, if they're going to be reading about COVID news, uh, they should know something about basic bio virology, you know, how vaccines work, germ theory, these kinds of things. So reading isn't just a skill. It really, really, really depends on a huge um, breadth of knowledge, both shallow and deep knowledge. Perfect. So I uh, have your article right here, actually. Um, I was hoping to read just a couple of uh, passages from it and see if you could maybe elaborate on a couple points. Are you up for that? Yeah, I have it in front of me, too. So let's do it together. Oh, perfect. Okay, so it's titled, We're Teaching Mediocrity in Literature Classrooms. Uh, it was published on the 10th of February this year uh, at the Fordham Institute. Um, so it says, since the beginning of the common school movement in the 1800s, we have valued our institutions of public education for their unifying nature, and the creation of a literate populace is an essential element of that goal. But modern-day English instruction accomplishes neither. Uh, so you're making the claim that there are basically two goals uh, for the common schools movement, and they are both unmet. Uh, it goes on to say in the article that use the paper, <laughs> that the workshop model features a different novel for every student, invariably always young adult fiction and no collective discussion of a shared text. Can you explain why not having this uh, shared text um, is such a detriment to students? And also, could we try to steel man the Lucy Calkins method? Uh, in other words, what is the best version of why they do it the way they do? Um, let me start with the Calkins. And then maybe we can move back to the, the problems with it. So if I'm steel mailing, steel manning Lucy Calkins of the workshop model in general, I think the theory goes, if we let students um, read what interests them, their motivation is going to be very high. And so they're going to get a whole lot of practice reading in um, and then um, their reading scores is going their reading scores are going to improve because there, there's this intrinsic motivation because they're following what interests them what is meaningful to them and so they're going to read a ton and they're going to sit around they're going to read all day and that's all that they need to do in order to uh, improve their literacy <sighs> would you say that's a fair i mean you're you're an english teacher too would you say that's a fair steel man of lucy Calkins? Well, I asked you because I have a real difficult time steel manning it. <laughs> I, I'm not a huge fan of Calkins myself um, for for a number of reasons. Um, but yeah, I would say that, uh, you know, centering the student, centering student choice, uh, you know, harkens back to this idea of, you know, discovery, uh, teaching and uh, that sort of thing. Uh, I think that's probably the reasoning behind, um, you know, why the Lucy Calkins units of study is arranged in the way that it is. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say probably a little more critically, if I might, uh, that it's driven probably by a, a misguided idea that 
if we're a little bit easier on students with the uh, tasks that we expect of them, uh, that they'll be more likely to accomplish them. Um, mm -hmm. I have a hard time believing that uh, there's too much of a less cynical uh, reading of that, but I'm fairly negative about that myself. So, yeah. And then moving on to the um, criticisms of it. I mean, I, I already alluded to some of them, so I don't need to rehash the idea of, you know, um, needing challenging texts. If a student is going to be choosing what they want, um, easier books are naturally going to appeal. Uh, again, we need them to know a whole lot of stuff. And if we don't have a sequence curriculum, um, they're not going to be learning, you know, history. They're not going to be reading Frederick Douglass. They won't necessarily read Martin Luther King. They won't read any Shakespeare. They won't read these um, important, historically significant texts that form um, so much of robust literacy, that, whole, that, that content knowledge that comes from reading historically significant texts. Um, but what I think where I was, I was trying to go in a unique direction with this article and suggesting that part of the problem that I found in using it, I've used Calkins before, is how much it atomizes the classroom. These kids, they pick their own books and then they cloister themselves off into a corner and they spend the whole time reading by themselves, right? We, you, you read the intro to it. We value, you read the intro to this article. We value our common schools, our public schools, because they're common, because they bring people with disparate interests and goals and ambitions and cultures together in one space. And we're supposed to learn how to get along together there. And then they go to the English classroom and everyone's just off on their own, not interacting at all. It's hyper individualized. Um, even though it tends to be kind of wrapped in this collectivist language, it's a very individualized classroom. Whereas if you're teaching a common book, you're talking about it together, you're reading it out loud together, you're debating ideas together, and there's just none of that um, collectiveness um, in the, the Calkins model. And it's just so sad and lonely, honestly. Yeah, I think there's a, a real central irony to that. Uh, as, as you mentioned, you know, I think it does lead to people being atomized into these little groups where, um, you know, at best they're talking to two or three other students who pick the same book uh, and they can speak to them in the workshop model. Um, but at worst, it kind of results, like you said, in this very individualistic environment. And I would think if you talk to somebody who uh, is a proponent of this method, that they would front and center the idea of community um, to uh, their their methods, their values. Uh, mm -hmm. They would definitely at least pay lip service to that. So it's it's interesting that uh, in your experience, and and I would say it reflects my experience as well, that it ends up in these uh, very not community fostering practices. Yeah, and the, the irony there is that at the political level, I tend to be an individualist, but then in a space like a classroom, I'm very communitarian. Um, and I'm going to ask my students and even myself sometimes to give up doing or reading what I want for the sake of the group and learning together and doing things together. And you can't always do what you want when you're living in a community. You have to, you have to sacrifice a little bit um, for the good of the group. And that, I mean, yeah. For sure. I mean, I'm a hopeless loner, so I would live in a cave somewhere by myself <laughs> if, mm -hmm. if it weren't for, you know, meeting my wife and all that. Um, so it is kind of ironic that, uh, you know, after uh, nearly 40 years of, of being somebody who really values his own independence and all of that, that 
uh, I'm coming around to this more community-driven uh, uh, model of education. Um, it was certainly unexpected for me uh, to come to that. Um, staying with Calkins for a little bit here, um, I know that one thing that I often get as pushback from people who uh, would defend this uh, would be to say, why not do both? Uh, in other words, why can't we have a mix of progressive models uh, like the reader-writer workshop or student-led slash discovery learning and more classical methods? Uh, is there something inherently contradictory about doing both of these in the same classroom? I think, you know, saying, why not do both? It makes me think of like, well, why not eat every food? You know, you there's a limited time and space in the uh, school year in a class day and you just don't have time to do everything. You don't have the appetite to eat everything. So you have to pick and choose and we want to fill our diets with what is healthiest. Um, you know, and Calkins just isn't as effective. So it's like, oh, well, you could eat the cooked vegetables or you could have a box of dozen donuts. It's like, well, why not do both? It's like, well, you don't have room for both. Um, I do, last year I ran one mini unit that was a choice unit. Um, and I kind of considered it a uh, palate cleanser of a unit. And this year I have a classroom where I'm kind of encouraged to do a workshop model and I do. And every time that I do it, I just, I feel like my students aren't learning as much and there's not as much, again, there's not as much um, classroom discussion. There's not as much rigor. There's not as much history that they're learning. And it's why, why would I fill my time with the workshop model when it's not an effective method of instruction? Tom Rogers, the founder of Teacher Stock Radio, has chimed in to let us know that he would love to eat every food. Um, well, yes, yeah, so would I. <laughs> there is definitely something to be said for, uh, you know, getting a fill of a lot of different things. But I, I take your point. Um, you know, there is a limited amount of time uh, in the school year. Um, you know, so you do have to be choosy about uh, uh, what you do. Um, <clears throat> I've always, you know, myself try to figure out how to make the workshop model work while reading a full text. Uh, so I think, you know, I, I can try to square those circles in that way, um, you know, to varying degrees of success. Um, but, you know, again, um, I, I always make sure that we have a shared text because I think without that, you know, what are you talking about? Um, maybe that's a lack of vision on my part, but that's definitely been my experience. Yeah. I um, do, I, can oh, I just run with that? Can I extend that metaphor too far? Sure. Um, I think if we're going to run with it, idea of food. I keep going back to food. Somebody's Let's break that metaphor to pieces. Yeah. Um, the workshop digestible model is, pieces. Yes. <laughs> the workshop model is, you know, it brings a kid into a grocery store and says, go eat whatever you want. Uh, and if you interact with any, um, you know, 13 year old, at least the ones that I've, I've interacted with, they're going to come back with Takis. They're going to come back with chocolate. They might come back with a few pieces of fruit, but it's not going to be a well-rounded diet versus a whole class novel, kind of a more traditional approach to the literary classroom. The teacher's role is to take foods that we know are healthy, carrots, veggies, fruits, and to make them appealing to students. You know, I'm not going to give them Shakespeare and be like, here, read this on your own and answer these questions. The end, no talking, right? That's just like giving somebody a raw piece of celery. Like nobody wants to eat that. 
our job is to kind of spice it up, cook it, make it interesting, make it digestible, um, help them like learn to appreciate it. You know, I'm, when I'm giving my students Shakespeare, it's not all silent work. They're coming up, they're acting it out. We're talking about it. We're debating it. I'm helping them connect it to their lives. It's, I'm the chef preparing the meal of the curriculum for them. Uh, and at this point, I think we need to put this metaphor or this analogy out of its misery because I've stretched it about as far as it can go. Uh, do you stretch food? I think maybe we did just break it. Yeah, we mix, we've begun mixing the metaphors into a bowl and we can cook them up and see what comes out. There we go. I actually, I have a bone to pick with the Shakespeare haters, uh, you know, talking about how dry Shakespeare is and, you know, that they don't like it and whatever. Oh, God, I have never had more success. I'm sorry, what was that? He's hilarious. He's interesting. He's compelling, but I see where you're going. So keep going with it. Yeah, I've just, I've just never had more success in a classroom than when I'm teaching Shakespeare. Um, Same, you know, 100%. And I, I think that people hear that and they think that maybe I'm, I'm just uh, exaggerating to, to make a point that, that I like, but it's true. I, I, I've taught a lot of other texts to varying levels of degree um, of success. Um, but Shakespeare, by and large, just every time I teach it, it's like magical. Something happens that people really like it. Now, you do obviously have to lay the groundwork. You have to talk about the language. You know, uh, in, in me in particular, in my classroom, we um, hammer different, uh, you know, sentence constructions all year in preparation for that so that they mm -hmm. can uh, deal with the really thorny syntax uh, that, that Shakespeare uses. Uh, but ultimately they come to this place where they really enjoy their time with it. So whenever I hear people hating on Shakespeare, I'm like, man, I don't know what you're doing with them. <laughs> yeah. I have to sell my students on a lot of books that we're going to read and it takes them a while to kind of get into it. And even at the end, some are like, mm, I didn't like that book. Shakespeare, I never have to sell it. Kids love the unit from beginning to end. They're really engaged where we laugh together. Heck last year we were watching Romeo and Juliet and every single girl in one of my classes uh, was crying and they were passing a tissue box around. So we cry together. Um, Shakespeare, is Daniel, just, like you said, it's almost magical in um, the classroom. Daniel, you can admit to crying to the Romeo and Juliet movie if you'd like. <laughs> There's been a few times where I rewatch it like on my prep just to kind of like, you know, get in the get in the zone, remember what I want to talk about. And like the kids come in and have to like wipe away my tears. Like oh, I wasn't crying. You were crying. <laughs> so absolutely shameless. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to move into just a little bit more, uh, I guess, controversial area here. Um, seems like we're probably prepped to do that pretty well, though. Um, so my last question was, why not teach both uh, with the uh, more progressive models of teaching plus the more classical methods of teaching? Uh, and this question is just going to jump to one of the biggest controversies in American education right now. Uh, which centers around this idea of CRT in the classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's all these bills introduced by uh, Chris Rufo, well, inspired by Chris Rufo uh, at different states to try to, um, I guess, ban CRT in the classroom or CRT practices in the classroom. And, uh, you know, I've written with you a little bit uh, against some of these practices. Uh, and being on Twitter is kind of being just deluged with, um, you know, examples of, of some some weird things that are happening in the schools. Uh, people will often retort uh, that we should be able to teach more conservative notions alongside things like CRT in the 1619 project and that students decide which they prefer. Um, what do you see as the problem with that? I mean, I would not mind if at, you know, um, sophomore, junior, senior in high school, 
the students learned the tenets of critical race theory outlined as an idea like they might learn Marxism or they might learn fascism or they might learn capitalism or they might learn, you know, these, these theories of the world, these kind of explanatory worldviews, um, that I don't mind. Okay. Um, I think a, a high schooler, especially at the upper level, can learn these ideas and kind of distance themselves from them and make their own decision on them. What I take issue with is, you know, just like John Dewey or Rousseau influence the day-to-day practices of education. So you get more project-based learning, student-directed classrooms, these kinds of things from John Dewey and Rousseau. The critical pedagogy, critical theory influences the curriculum, the discipline policies, the instructional practices in the classroom and in schools. So you get things like, you know, schools getting rid of punitive discipline. You get um, a complete and absolute derision for any amount of direct instruction. That's from Paulo Freire, who says that maps the oppressor-oppressed dichotomy under the teacher-student relationship. Um, You get students learning, um, basically becoming activists in the classroom instead of learning traditional civics or traditional content or history or science or any of these things. So I don't mind them actually learning critical race theory as an idea. I take issue with critical pedagogy and critical theory, kind of the umbrella philosophies influencing every aspect of American education. Right. And on a related note, this is something that um, we've discussed in the past, um, but I'm not sure I've ever heard a fleshed out uh, version of this argument. is in regards to uh, critical lenses in teaching of literature. Um, now you've publicly publicly written um, critically of critical lenses. If that's not a mouthful, I don't know what is. Um, can you just expound on uh, what is problematic about teaching literature through a critical lens? Yeah, so reading through a critical lens is reading any book through a feminist lens or a critical race theory lens or a uh, deconstructionist, Freudian, Marxist. There's a whole bunch of different lenses that you can read through. And in each case, you're just reading a book through some sort of identity marker, be it gender, race, colonized. Um, I mean, there are more you know, in the ego uh, of Freud. My issue with these, again, senior in high school, they're an AP lit. You say here is sort of this postmodern approach to reading that has its roots in Derrida and Foucault and some French intellectuals, and we're going to do it for a book or for a unit, and you'll know that it's there. That I'm fine with. Um, It's when students are being encouraged in every unit, every lesson, to read through a lens. And this lens always kind of comes to the same conclusion that everything about you know, the West is um, inherently oppressive, objectivity is bad, rationality is bad. Um, and its defenders will say that you're reading through this lens as a means to understand society, you know, reading through a race lens to understand society. The problem, though, is it's not just there to understand society or even interrogate society, but it's always to condemn society. And whatever book you read, you come to the same conclusion. Um, You're almost reading a confirmation bias into 
every book that you're reading instead of reading, I mean, I have a, my books up here, I'm looking at them, you know, seeing what does democracy in America have to say about the world? What does uh, Shakespeare want to say in the world about the world? What does Frederick Douglass or any of these authors want to teach us about whatever topic they're writing about? Um, it almost be like going to a lecture on biology and coming away commenting about the uh, heteronormative oppression in Victorian England. It's like, well, but you went to a lecture about biology. Like, why are you coming? Like, why are we talking about these other things? These other ideas might be fine to talk about, but we don't want to talk about the same thing with every single book that we're reading over and over and over and over again, always coming to the same conclusion and never listening to what the author has to say and letting ourselves be challenged by the ideas that they're presenting. Right. I think a lot of this stems from, there's a famous essay, I can't remember who it's by right now, um, but it's called The Death of the Author, um, which basically argues that in order to get to the truth of a story, you have to just ignore the author uh, entirely, and the author's intentions also don't matter. Um, I oftentimes think about that essay, and I think I, I would love to write a response piece at some point. I'm sure someone's already done this, someone more clever than me, but I'd like to talk about the death of the reader uh, instead. I, I think um, a lot of your complaint about um, reading through a critical lens has to do with it's centering the reader too much. You know, uh, I think uh, a lot of teachers do kind of start to adhere to this idea that um, in order to truly understand a text, you have to get the author out of the way, get the author's intentions out of the way. Uh, I think that's a, a fun activity to do, you know, on your own, in your own free time. I just wonder the, the, the usefulness of that in the classroom myself. Um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd like people to read Shakespeare and figure out what it means, not what your yeah. identity markers make it mean. It's funny that you, you bring this up and you, you've already mentioned the fact that we're both um, dogmatic Hersheans, uh, Edie Hirsch, referencing there again. Absolutely. He began his career as a literary critic and he wrote several you know, essays or chapters in you know, academic books basically saying authorial intent matters and we have to be looking for the ideas that are within the text not trying to impose ideas onto the text. You know, if you want to read about race, class, or gender, there are lots of books that have a whole bunch of stuff to say about them. Don't try and force kind of our modern or postmodern progressive worldview onto Chaucer or something like that. I got in an argument with one of my professors in college about this one, but we don't need to rehash the arguments that I had with the TA when I was 19 and full of myself. <laughs> well, as many 19 year olds are, mm -hmm. I would, um, say probably for my own practice, um, if there's a, a lens that I teach through and I don't, I don't know why this is counted amongst the lenses, but it is in a lot of the, uh, kind of critical methods books that I've read, but, uh, formalism is really for me, um, how I center my English teaching, you know, what are the components of the story? Um, what are the, you know, elements of fiction? What are the, the different, um, you know, uh, figurative language devices that are used within the poem, that sort of thing. And, you know, doing a close reading and pulling all of those apart and then kind of adding it together or reconstituting it into, um, you know, what we think the meaning of the text is. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, these uh, different critical uh, pedagogy methods, I, I've just feel like they always fall a little bit flat. You're teaching the method instead of teaching 
a, a skill that will allow them to, um, you know, make their own um, um, meaning of of the text, uh, if that makes any sense at all. Yeah, Ranting do, a little bit here. That's fine. I do think it's um, it's almost kind of like the final fulfillment of Dewey's vision, where the, the you know twentieth early twentieth century uh, progressive theorists of education. You know, Dewey wrote that there's no content that is in and of itself inherently worth learning. I'm paraphrasing there, but basically there's nothing, there's no content that's worth learning. We just got to give the kids what interests them and then they're learning the academic skills. And that I think you and I both have our issues with the idea of academic skills. You know, like I talked about earlier, reading really relies on knowledge and not necessarily this vague, ambiguous skill that's there. Um, But the reading through these literary, like super esoteric literary lenses is trying to um, figure out, okay, what are the skills of reading? And I think, you know, the more people grasp at the skills of reading, they realize that they're not really there. And so they keep trying to create new ones. And this idea that we can teach kids to read through a lens and therefore they will be great readers. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of the final culmination of Dewey's ideas rather than teaching them content and poems and books and stories and novels and speeches and primary texts that are worth learning and the arguments in them and the language in them and the characters and the themes and all of these things that are within the text itself. Um, right. And unfortunately in the American context, at least all of our standards are written uh, with skills in mind rather than with any sort of concrete knowledge. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, this is just going to become a, a Hirsch love fest, but that's, you know, uh, one of his, main problems with the American educational system is that we don't tell the students what they need to know. We just have these abstract skills that we think we can apply to any text. And stemming from that comes this idea that you can just teach some contemporary lit, uh, some really bad novel written in verse, (laughs) you know, that's not really verse. They just didn't know where to hit enter. Uh, You know, all of that sort of thing comes from this idea that, well, it doesn't matter what the text is. It doesn't matter if it's uh, inappropriately easy for the student. doesn't matter if it's, uh, you know, written, you know, last week or whether it's written, you know, as a blog post somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, the idea is that we can find these skills and apply them to anything. And I, I just think that uh, our test scores have, have proved that that is not a very good uh, method if you're trying to educate a populace. Mm-hmm. So switching uh, gears just a little bit, I want to make sure that we talk a little bit about school choice before I let you go today. Um, <clears throat> so in the context of everything we've discussed so far, uh, why would you say that school choice is important to you? Lots of reasons. Um, just off the top of my head right now, it's got majority support among basically every demographic. It's ranging from like 60 up to 80% among Democrats, Republicans, white, black, Hispanic, rich, poor. That being said, um, popular support isn't... Um, really a determinant of whether or not a policy should be followed you know some there's been, there's been popular support for a lot of terrible policies out there so that's not really an argument for school choice um that's just something worth note up worth noting up front i think um i'm just drawn to the localism and the liberty that is built into the structure of school choice itself. We're not trying to improve schools with top-down mandates from Washington, you know, 
America is a huge country. Um, and I'm trying to, you know, you and I like curriculum, if Washington were to try and put together a content rich curriculum, it would send this country into probably the most bitter fight over education that we've ever had, um, trying to decide what books and what history and what science our kids ought to learn would just be so wildly controversial. But that conversation changes when we're at a local level, um, you know, letting schools respond to local needs, letting schools um, uh, an organic grassroots ground up improvement versus a top down improvement. I think um, there's a, a lot of opposition to school choice. You know, people say, oh, well, like we need great schools that work for everyone. And that's just really a polite way of telling students in failing schools that they just need to wait. Uh, you know, you don't get to go to a better school now. Uh, you have to wait until we try and improve all of the schools, but that never actually happens. Um, market pressure and competition, I don't mind those in the education space. You know, if one school uh, is doing a wonderful job, you know, there are a lot of charter systems in the nation already that are um, succeeding wildly and they're attracting more and more and more students. And so they get more and more funding and then they build more buildings. And before you know that they have 50, 60, 70 success academies or uncommon schools or kip schools. And it's like, if these are successful, let them have the resources to continue and expand their success. Um, I mean, it saves money. There's, there's an endless right. list. Let of them become Walmart. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, let them grow, let them get bigger, you know, yeah. under a system of school choice, there'd still be the mom and pop schools, but there'd also be larger schools like that, that have proven to be successful and have streamlined their process to the point where, you know, it's able to be um, replicated over and over mm -hmm. again. Mm -hmm. um, I do have a question from a listener here. Eric Sinclair asks, uh, can we do school choice without vouchers? Um, you might be a little bit more up on some policy issues, school choice wise. He says that that would have much more bipartisan support. Any thoughts on that? I think there's uh, the the more po not the more popular, but the more wonky think tankery version of school choice is educational savings accounts. ESAs. Um, and these are not you know it's not just a voucher that you go spend at any school, but it also brings in if a, if a family wants to homeschool, they can use money on you know, homeschooling supplies and curriculum. If families want to use it to save up for college savings accounts they can use it there there's just like even more freedom for where these people can spend the funds i don't think school choice works if you don't have the funding following the student though you know then then you just get this i was thinking about that earlier today and then you get this mixing up of students and one school might be in really high demand but then they don't have the resources that come with that demand you know if a school if a thousand students apply to one school but they only have the funding for 500 well then they can't actually provide a quality product so in some way the fund the funds need to follow the students if that's an educational savings account or a voucher or whatever it is um, there needs to be some sort of mechanism for that there are options other than vouchers but you can't get rid of that idea altogether and still have school choice right there's a, a great but really heartbreaking documentary uh used to be on netflix i'm not sure if it still is or not 
uh, called Waiting for Superman. Oh, um, yeah, it's gut-wrenching. Yeah, you follow these families who are, um, you know, applying for these schools. They're going through the lottery system, uh, and it shows a lot of them being turned down. And these are uh, parents who, you know, are not people of means necessarily. They can't afford a private school. They're in a bad district uh, where the public school is, you know, really, really not good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is their last hope is to get into a school like Success Academy or, or the KIPP schools or, you know, any of those other uh, charter networks. And and you get to see some of them uh, become elated when they find out that their kid's future is going to be much brighter because they got accepted. But the vast majority of those parents end up being turned down. Um, mm-hmm. So I would definitely recommend uh, watching that anybody who's interested in uh, the school choice argument. Uh, I have one more question on school choice, and then I'm going to let you go. Uh, I think that, in my opinion, this is the question uh, to ask people who are proponents of school choice to determine whether or not uh, they're serious about uh, decentralizing um, schools and, and allowing them to kind of do their own curriculum. Uh, the question is, under a system of school choice, if there was a school which was committed to teaching their students that America is a fundamentally racist country or some other radical notion, would you accept their right to do so? Probably. I am not a privatize at all and get government completely out of education person. I think there's a space for basic regulations. Um, and if I had standardized tests, they'd actually measure like a uh, low a low threshold. You know, everyone wants to raise the bar. I'm actually kind of for lowering the bar. If a school achieves um, basic literacy and grasp of content knowledge and um, numeracy and kids can do basic algebra and things like that, and then the high school wants to just go really hard for the arts, I'm fine with that. Um, but if a school isn't achieving basic literacy or things like this, well, then they don't get to continue not educating kids. So that being said, if a school went all in for critical pedagogy, I would put money on the fact that they're not going to produce particularly literate um, students. So if they can do it and uh, still meet the basic standards, then fine. I disagree with it. But that is um, a lot of what comes with promoting individual liberty is I need to defend somebody's right to do something that I disagree with, especially if it's not harming students. Again, if they're not learning to read, if they're not learning basic math, if they're not learning basic history, then we have a problem. Um, But so long as they're meeting those basic expectations, then if they want to teach a worldview that I disagree with, (sighs) sigh, I have to defend the right to do so. All right. Mr. Daniel Buck, that is all the time that we have for today. Uh, Can you tell the listeners where they can find you and your work? Yeah. So I'm on Twitter at Mr. Daniel Buck. I write for the Fordham Institute. Fordham is how it's spelled. And then um, I also write for National Review a ton. So if you just look up Daniel Buck National Review, you'll find everything that I write there, writing about everything from instruction to curricular debates to school choice to whatever the trending argument is in education at the time. So, Okay, well, thanks for speaking with me today on Teachers Talk Radio, and I will be right back after the news. Thanks for having me on. This has been fun. Thank you. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn.
a report from the Consortium for Research into Deaf Education has shown that the number of specialist teachers of the deaf in England has fallen by 16.5% since 2011. The National Deaf Children's Society has said that the deaf children already fall behind at every stage of school and they fear that this decline will increase as a result of 53% of existing staff being over the age of 50. Mike Hobday, Director of Policy and Campaigns at the NDCS said, Teachers of the deaf play an absolutely crucial role, but year after year they've been cut just to balance the books. As a result, deaf children are left fighting for their futures and falling behind at every stage of school. We need urgent action to fix this issue, but there is no guarantee that more funding for schools will be enough to provide exactly what deaf pupils need. A spokesperson for the Department of Education said, all children and young people, including those who are deaf or have a hearing impairment, should receive the support they need to succeed in their education. That's why there is a legal requirement for teachers to hold relevant mandatory qualifications when teaching classes of pupils who have a sensory impairment. In Wales, head teachers have warned that lockdowns have left many young people unable to cope as bad behaviour has soared in schools. Jane Harries, head teacher of Haverford West High, warned, there will be very few schools in Wales now who do not have some involvement with the police. It is a tiny minority of children, but it has risen in the pandemic. Jackie Parker, head teacher of Crickhowell High in Powys, said school was a magic cocktail that allows students to develop emotionally and academically. She said, Students have done incredibly well, but we are now in a situation where we need to do serious work around behaviour. It brings to the fore that schools are more than academic institutions. School is about emotional intelligence, empathy and friendship, as well as academic performance. There will be no quick fix. The NAS-UWT union has had an increase in the reports from members of higher levels of verbal abuse from children. This has been your latest Teachers Talk Radio News with Gail Glenn. This is Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods, your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. Hello, today I'm responding to a tweet from Michelle Stevens at M underscore Stevens Zero, pointing out to at Team English One that a lot of people don't know about the snipping tool, and she was compiling a list of shortcuts. The thread sparked a lot of fantastic responses and inspired today's Two Minute Tech. Today I present Getting Snippy With It. In Windows, a simple shortcut combo of Windows plus Shift plus S opens the snipping tool. The snipping tool is like an advanced version of print screen. After the combo key press, a small menu appears giving you five options. Rectangle select, which is 
draw a box around what you want. Freeform select, which is draw a shape around what you want. Window select, which is pick the window you want to capture. Screen select, which captures the full screen or replication of the print screen button. Some may say there's no point to this, but stay tuned. There is. Finally, there's a cross to close and pressing escape can do the same thing. If you have an interactive board, you can pin, snip and sketch to your taskbar. Right click the icon and select pin to taskbar. Now you can press it to make screen grabs and not have to go over to the keyboard. Snip and sketch also gives you the ability to annotate on a screenshot. To make this even more powerful, did you know pressing Windows and V shows your last 25 captures to your clipboard? The first time you use this, you'll need to switch on the feature by pressing Windows and V and agreeing to switch it on. Now you can take several screen captures and then paste them into the app you're presenting with. This can be very time efficient. For this week's visual version of the episode, I've made a series of clips and given some real life examples of using the snipping tool. So don't forget to check out TT Radio 2020 Twitter feed. I'm Steve Woods and that was Two Minute Tech. Two Minute Tech with Steve Woods. Your tech briefing on Teachers Talk Radio. This has been James A. Fury for Teachers Talk Radio. I just want to thank everybody for listening today for my first episode. Hopefully there weren't too many hiccups. You can hear me really well. Uh, and hopefully you could hear Daniel Buck really well too. I also want to thank Mr. Daniel Buck for uh, coming on and letting me talk with him today and pick his brain on different educational topics. You can follow Teachers Talk Radio on social media at TT Radio 2022. That's T-T-R-A-D-I-O 2022. And you can find me on Twitter at James A. Fury. That's James A-F-U-R-E-Y. And make sure to listen again next week when I'll be talking to English teacher Matt Ryan. Be well, everyone, and goodbye until then. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.